Come follow me, the Savior said. Then let us in his footsteps tread. For thus alone can we. This is Lexi Austin, and you are listening to The Savior Said, Season 2. This is a weekly podcast that follows my study of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each week, I will be using the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This curriculum can be found online at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For more fun, follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Savior Said. Please note, episodes of The Savior Said are not meant to replace your Come Follow Me experience, but to supplement your own personal study of the scriptures. Hey guys, welcome back to The Savior Said. This is the assignment for July 13th through 19th, Alma 32 through 35, Plant This Word in Your Hearts. Now before we get started... I want to say thanks to jshay92 for her five-star review on iTunes. Um, Such sweet words, and I love it so much. If you feel moved to go leave a review on iTunes, I would encourage you to do so. It helps others find Come Follow Me podcasts that they want to listen to. And so if you've enjoyed The Savior Said, go leave a review. It'll help somebody else find it too. All right, but getting back to our episode at hand. The introduction in Come Follow Me starts out with For the Zoramites. And as an aside, guys, I have to tell you, I've been playing this game. It's called Plants vs. Zombies. And so, you know, the word zombies is like all over the game. So every time I went to go read my Come Follow Me materials, like I'd open up my book and I would see For the Zoramites, but really in my mind, it would translate it to For the Zombies. So... <laughs> That's just an aside. It's just something goofy. But um, so every time I see Zoramites, I'm thinking about zombies. But anyways, continuing on. So this is the introduction to Come Follow Me this week. For the Zoramites, prayer was a self-centered routine practice that happened only once a week. Okay, pause there. So I started thinking about this as prayer as a self-centered routine practice. And it made me start thinking about my own prayers. How are some of my prayers self-centered and routine? What is it that I'm repeating every day? Um, I saw a quote somewhere online this week, and I wish I could go back and find it. I don't know where I saw it. Um, I like I can see it in my mind, but not the exact wording. I don't know. Okay, so here's kind of what it what it said. If you say a prayer without praying for somebody else, you've lost the opportunity, or you've missed the opportunity. Maybe it was missed. Missed the opportunity to bless somebody else's life. So if you've said a prayer without praying for somebody else, you've missed an opportunity to bless somebody's life. I think that's a really good thought. It actually made me think more unselfishly about my prayers um, and kind of turn. Because, you know, when I pray, I'm worried about my world and what's going on with my world and in my life and in that moment, what I'm feeling. And it becomes very me, 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 me. Heavenly Father, I'm worried about this. Heavenly Father, I need this. Heavenly Father, this is going on with me. And this week, because of the example of the Zoramites and the way that they were so me, 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 and that quote started making me think about turning outward in prayer. How can I serve others through my prayers? And who are those that need my prayers? Whose lives can I bless by asking for blessings for them? And it made me really start thinking about expanding, I guess, like my circle of thought as I go to to my prayers, to being beyond just me, 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 but 
to others and worrying about what others need and what others think. And I liked the way that that kind of turned my mind because I feel like that was more Christ-like than focusing just on me. So that was one thing I learned from Come Follow Me this week. All right, let's go back into the little introduction. I know we didn't even get past a sentence, but okay, going back into the introduction. It consisted of standing where all could see and repeating vain, self-satisfied words. And perhaps worse, the Zoramites lacked faith in Jesus Christ. They even denied his existence, and they persecuted the poor. Okay, pause there. So the Zoramites and the Ramiumptum has always been so interesting to me. I don't want to say it's one of my favorite stories, but like, because that's really kind of an awful story to have as your favorite, but I like it because I'm like, Ramiumptum is just a cool word, number one. And number two, like, I imagine almost like Dr. Seuss-like illustrations of like this crazy Dr. Seuss-like tower and them like marching up like little cat in the hat type figures to the top of the tower and then proclaiming their little prayer and then turning around and coming back down. Like it seems very Dr. Seuss-like in my mind and I don't know why that is. But so I see that. And then I see Alma and Amulek when they're going and they're talking to the poor Zoramites who are like, we don't know how to worship God. We don't, we can't go into the synagogues. And I'm like, good guys, you don't want to go in there. It sounds like there's all kinds of craziness going on. And that's kind of what Alma and Amulek tell them. But continuing on with the introduction. By contrast, Alma and Amulek boldly taught that prayer has more to do with what happens in our hearts than on a public platform. And if it doesn't lead to compassion towards those in need, it is vain and availeth nothing. So that's kind of like my quote. If you say a prayer without blessing somebody else or asking for something for somebody else, you've missed a chance to be a blessing in their lives. Is that what I said? Uh, I don't know. I really need to nail that down that quote because I'm messing it up like 10 different ways. It was something like that. Okay. So anyways, it's basically your prayers are vain and availeth nothing if you doesn't lead to those towards those in need and having compassion towards those in need. All right. Most important is an expression of faith in Jesus Christ, who offered redemption through his infinite and eternal sacrifice. Such faith, Alma explained, is born of humility and a desire to believe. It grows gradually like a tree and requires constant nourishment. As you read Alma 32 through 35, you might consider your own faith and prayers. Do you ever feel any Zoramite-like attitudes creeping in? How will you nourish your faith in Jesus Christ so it'll become a tree springing up into everlasting life? So that kind of gives you a little bit of an overview of what we are going to be talking about this week with our Come Follow Me assignment. Um, the first section is called, I Can Choose to Be Humble. And it says, Alma perceived that the Zoramites were humble and in a preparation to hear the word. As you read Alma 32, 1 through 16, think about how you can prepare to hear the word of God. Okay, so the scriptures that jumped out to me from this section are Alma 32, let's see, it's 10 and 11. And it says, Behold, I say unto you, do ye suppose that ye cannot worship God, save it be in your synagogues only? And moreover, I would ask, do you suppose that ye may not worship God, or you must not worship God only once in a week? And the reason that those stuck out to me is because I think sometimes we focus, or at least I do, focus on the formal times where we're saying our prayers or formal formal times where we're sitting down and reading our scriptures or formal times where we're having sacrament meeting or um, right now taking the sacrament with our families or whatever it is that we do on Sundays. But I think part of humbling myself and knowing that I need God is knowing that I need him in my everyday life, in every minute of my everyday life, not just those times where I'm formally sitting down with him. 
And so one of the things that I've really tried to do this week is to kind of constantly have a prayer going in my mind and not even necessarily like a formal prayer, but more like just a conversation kind of um, with God as I go throughout my day. I think of it almost kind of like a spiritual umbilical cord, you know, between me and my heavenly father and just kind of having that like back and forth between him as I go throughout my day and kind of thinking things through and um, kind of listening to what he has to say to me. And that to me, I think is humbling myself to say, I need you all day long. Every hour I need you. I need you in my life, no matter what day it is, no matter what time it is, no matter what I'm doing, I need you. And you know, please be there with me. And I think that's a form of humility too. So that was something that I learned from the scriptures this week. All right, going on with Come Follow Me, it says, what experiences have humbled you? Okay, the first one that came to my mind is being a parent. Being a parent is incredibly humbling. And it's one of those situations where you don't choose to be humble, like you are humbled. Because all of a sudden, you are responsible for a little person. And you need to take care of that little person. And all those times, you flash back on all the times before you were a parent where you're like, I will never be a parent that does that. And all of a sudden, you're a parent that does that, right? Because <laughs> you didn't really know what it was like. Um, and I, I remember the first couple years, you know, I'm a stepmom. My son is my adopted son, basically. Um, he's not my biological son. And my husband and I, we got married when he was three. And that's when he kind of became my adopted son. And so it was kind of a rough transition from being a single girl to being like a wife and a mother all at once. And so there's some serious humility that went on there where I was like, I know everything, blah, blah, blah. And then I go and I'm like, no, I don't know anything. And there was lots of conversations with my heavenly father um, as I was going through that experience. But I realized very quickly that it wasn't something I could do on my own. And as I think about the past 11 years or so, it has been 11 years, 11 years that we've been married, um, my conversations with my Heavenly Father have focused probably more on my son than anyone else. Um, Maybe my husband a little bit more, but yeah, they're both of them. They're, you know, which I think is right. I think we should be focusing on our spouse and our children probably more than anyone else. But I think about that anytime I talk to him about deep conversations about the gospel or whatever's going on in his life, you know, praying that the Spirit's there because I know I can't do this on my own. And I remember how hard those first couple of even months were because I was trying to do it on my own. I was trying to be the perfect mom and I was trying to be the perfect wife and trying to be everything to everyone. And I was doing it on my own. And I almost like destroyed myself trying to do that. And so stepping back and saying, Heavenly Father, I can't do this on my own and I can't do it perfectly. And having a conversation with my Heavenly Father where he says, you know what? You're not going to be a perfect parent. You're not going to be a perfect mom. You're not going to be a perfect wife, but it's okay because I'm here with you. And I think that there's no such thing as a perfect spouse or a perfect parent. You know, all of our parents mess us up a little bit, and hopefully it's enough that just, you know, we we get to be a little quirky and have a good sense of humor. But I think that there's times where our Heavenly Father, He helps us become better parents than we could be on our own, but also He helps our kids recover from the times where we were not the best parent, you know? Um, it's, It's interesting how the atonement kind of works both ways. So that was one of the times I thought I really was humbled, um, big time. Another time that I thought of where I really was humbled 
was when I was first, and again, this this came out of those first couple years that we, we'd gotten married. I realized that something was wrong with the way that I was thinking. And I realized that there was probably depression there and that there was probably anxiety. And I'd been dealing with depression and anxiety for a long time. And it was one of those things where I thought, I was just weird. Like everybody else seems to not have a problem with this. Everyone else seems to be happy all the time. Like, why do I feel this way that I do? And it took some humbling to go to my doctor and ask, hey, I need help and I can't do this on my own. And he referred me then to a psychiatrist, which, you know, I went to the psychiatrist and he put me on medication, which helped. But then it took even more humbling after that and saying, you know, this medicine is helping and it's helping kind of even keel things out, like, so I don't have crazy, like, lows and anxiety and stuff like that anymore. But there's still issues I need to work on. And they're not issues that I can work on by myself. And so then it took incredible amounts of humility to say, hey, I need a therapist. And going and finding a therapist and, you know, going to visit the therapist and saying, here's all the things that I feel like I really need to work on. And therapy itself is a very humbling experience because you kind of take apart everything that's going on in your head. And sometimes it doesn't feel very good. But afterwards, when you start putting those pieces back together, you find yourself so much stronger and able to cope with things than you did before. So that was an experience that I really thought about I had to be humble to ask for help. It wasn't something I could just pray away or fast and it would go away or try and, you know, power of positive thinking. It wasn't anything I could do on my own. I had to ask for help. And so that was a situation where I had to be humble. And I'm so glad that I did. But here's the thing. Even in that humility, my Heavenly Father was there with me. So it's crazy to me to think that these moments where we have to be humble or where we have to be experiencing humility, we have the most powerful being in the universe on our side. Sorry, guys, I'm getting like misty eyed because I just feel so strongly about this. If you hear me tearing up, it's because I am, because I remember how much he was with me during those times that were so hard for me. And during those times where I said, hey, I can't do this on my own. I can't be perfect on my own, which was one of my things is I felt like I had to be perfect. Or if I wasn't perfect internally, like my mindset wasn't perfect, I was dealing with depression or whatever, I had to still make it appear like I was perfect on the outside, like nothing was wrong and everything was fine. And it was really hard to do that. And it finally just broke me down. That was kind of when I got to the point where I was like, okay, I really need to talk to somebody. And being humble in that moment, but still knowing that I was being guided by my Heavenly Father, the most powerful force in the universe was still there with me, and probably even more so because of the humility that I was forced to go through in that situation. So when I think about these Zoramites and what they were going through and how they were compelled to be humble... I think about those times in my life where I have been compelled to be humble and how much closer I felt to my Heavenly Father during those moments. Um, Then I think about the times where, you know, you have to choose to be humble. And one of the things that I hate more than anything else in the entire world, like I hate it, is being wrong. I like being right all the time. I like knowing stuff and I like being the know-it-all and I like being right. And so... When I am wrong, it is really hard for me. 
But any time that I'm wrong is an opportunity to be humble and to have humility. And it's one of those situations where not necessarily I'm compelled to be humble, but that's a situation where I can look at it and say, okay, that was not right. I'm in the wrong here. So I need to go and apologize to this person. I need to maybe change my perspective. I need to change this mindset that I've had. Or maybe I need to go back and like recognize that I made a mistake. Those are all ways I think of being humble, but not being compelled to do so, but choosing to be humble, if that makes sense. Like I'm thinking in my mind right now, like just a couple, like an hour or so ago, I really, really snapped at my son about something. And so I'm like, I have to be humble and go apologize to him here in a minute because I shouldn't have snapped at him. I was anxious and upset about something else and I took it out on him and that was not okay. So those moments where I choose to be humble and I choose to make my my mistakes that I've made or said or whatever it is and choose to make them better, I think brings me closer to Christ because that's what he wants for us. He wants us to take our imperfections and the times where we've messed up And he wants us to make them better and become better through them. And that's why I think choosing to be humble helps bring us closer to him. All right. The next question, Come Follow Me, asks, what have you done to become more humble? And right here in my book, I wrote, I take a step back and recognize that I might be wrong because I'm not always right 100% of the time. In fact, if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, you know I'm wrong, like, I don't know, a lot. I would say maybe 20% 20 of the time. I don't know. But yeah, so I'm not always right. I don't always know everything. And it takes a while for me to take a step back and like admit that. But that helps me become more humble is realizing, hey, you don't know everything. And maybe you need to learn about some stuff. Something else I've done when I've to become more humble is ask for help. Recognize that I can't do everything on my own. Whether it be help from, you know, a mental health professional, like I talked about, or whether it be help just from a friend or whether it be help maybe from, you know, the Relief Society or whatever is going on, asking for help and saying, hey, I need help. Um, Because I like to put out this thing like, I'm perfect. I've got everything under control. Everything's handled. I'm a superwoman. And it's hard for me to break that down and say, no, I really am not. So that's something I have done to become more humble, to become more real is really kind of what I focus on and talking about my imperfections and sharing those imperfections with others like I do here through the podcast because I feel like that helps me keep that humility in my life. You know, like I am impatient and I am judgy and I am headstrong and I'm proud and I need to take that pride down a notch and, you know, things like that, that helps me keep that humility in my life when I realize I'm not perfect, you know? All right, going back to come follow me. These verses could teach you how to choose humility rather than being compelled to be humble. For example, what is the difference between being poor as to the things of the world and being poor in heart? This is from Alma 32.3, and it says, Therefore, they were not permitted to enter into their synagogues to worship God, being esteemed as filthiness. Therefore, they were poor. Yea, they were esteemed by their brethren as dross. Therefore, they were poor as to the things of the world and also were poor in their heart. So I thought about this and there was actually, I I went and read another article and I'll tell you guys about the article in just a minute, but the article had a scripture that we read last year in our Come Follow Me assignment. Um, It's from 2 Corinthians and it made me think of the difference between being poor in the things of the world and poor in the things of the heart. Okay, so this is 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 9. 
and it says we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are cast down, but not destroyed. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Okay, going back into the scripture here. We are troubled on every side. That's being poor in the things of the world, yet not distressed. If we were distressed, that'd be poor in the things of the heart. We are perplexed, that's the world, but not in despair. If we were in despair, that would be a thing of the heart. Persecuted, that's a thing of the world, not forsaken. If we were forsaken, that would be being poor in heart. Cast down, that's being poor in the world, but not destroyed. If we were destroyed, that would be being poor in heart, you know? So do you see like the contrast that Paul was using there in the second Corinthians? I saw that here in what Alma and Amulek were trying to talk to the the poor Zoramites about. And so that's one of the ways that I saw the difference was when we have our Heavenly Father with us, when we have our Savior with us, we are not poor in heart. We may be poor as to the things of the world, but not poor in heart. Does that make sense? That's kind of what I thought of. Okay, continuing on with Come Follow Me. It says, what does it mean to humble yourself because of the word? And it references Alma 32, 14. And this is what it says. And now, as I said unto you, that because you were compelled to be humble, you were blessed. Do you not suppose that they are more blessed who truly humble themselves because of the word? And I thought about that too. Choosing to be humble is much harder, I think, than being compelled to be humble. And when we have those moments where we choose to be humble, um, I think our Heavenly Father is proud of us. And I think He honors that. You know, He's with us when we have those moments where I know I can't do this by myself. Um, One of the times in my life where I felt that intensely is with this podcast. Um, When it started out, and I know I've told the story like a million times, but Like when I started out doing this, I told my heavenly father, I can't do this. Like, I know I can't because I don't have the knowledge to do this. I don't necessarily have like the personality that can just be put out there and not have, you know, not worry about people saying nasty stuff about me. That makes me very nervous to put myself out here like this. And I don't know that I have, you know, the ability to be regular with weekly episodes like Being constant is not my thing. I'm kind of scatterbrained and all over the place. So the fact that I have been constant for pretty much two years is right there a miracle. And so I told my Heavenly Father all that. I'm like, these are all the reasons why I can't do this. And I'm going to do it anyways, but I need you with me. And so before every episode, I pray and he's there. And during the week, I pray and he's there. And he points out stuff in my scripture study, like, hey, this would be good to talk about on the podcast. Or, hey, maybe you should go read this conference talk. This might be good to talk about on the podcast there too. And so I think he rewards that humility when I'm like, you know, Lord, I can't do this without you. And still, even like today, I'm like, I I can't do these episodes without you. I am not enough. And I realize that. And so I come to him and say, I need you to fill this podcast because I'm not enough on my own. And so that's one of the ways that I've humbled myself um, because I need to. I need his help. Um, If we go to humility and gospel topics, which um, Come Follow Me tells us to, it says, to be humble is to recognize gratefully our dependence upon the Lord, to understand that we have a constant need for him and his support. Humility is an acknowledgement that our talents and abilities are gifts from God. 
It is not a sign of weakness. Timid, timidity? Timidity. I think it's timidity. Is that that word? Uh, well, continuing on. It's not a sign of being timid. We'll say that. Or fear. It is an indication that we know where true strength lies. We can be both humble and fearless. We can be both humble and courageous. I love that. We can be both humble and fearless. We can be humble and courageous. And I think that's what we need to be, especially in these latter days. We need to be humble and fearless, humble and courageous, right? And our Heavenly Father can help us be those things if we come to Him and humble ourselves before Him and say, Lord, I can't do this without you. Um, one of the things that I'm really struggling with right now is when we go back to school, and I'm saying that like with quotation marks because no one really knows how we're going back to school in the fall, I have no idea what my job is going to entail. I have no idea. Um, today, there was supposed to be this roadmap that the state superintendent was supposed to roll out about how things are supposed to function in the fall. And he basically said, it's up to the individual school systems. And we'd all been waiting like holding our breath to see what the state superintendent said. So now that it's up to the local school systems, I have no idea what, what it's going to look like. Um, I'm very nervous for as to what my job in the school library will look like when we get back to school. I don't know what my responsibilities will be. Honestly, there's districts across the country that have cut their school librarians. So that makes me nervous too. I don't even know if I'll have a job. And that's one of the ways where I've seen I need to humble myself because I'm like, Heavenly Father, I don't know what the future holds. All I know is that you are in control. And so humbling myself to say, oh, I can do anything. I can go out and find a job if I need to. I can go ahead and do this. And I can be a super librarian. I can do whatever, you know, comes at me. When I feel so overwhelmed instead, I'm like, Heavenly Father, I can't. I can't do this by myself. I need you with me. And then that quote then from the gospel topics where he says, we can be both humble and fearless, humble and courageous. That to me was telling me, Lexi, you can be fearless and courageous when it comes to whatever's going to happen in August because I'm with you. And I'm like, okay, I can walk with you hand in hand into whatever happens in August. You know, I saw a picture from one of the Facebook groups that I'm in and it's a woman standing on a beach and she's facing this giant wave that's coming at her. And the, it was like a meme and it said, you know, teachers during summer break be like, and it like that was the woman. And then the wave that's coming towards her was fall 2020. And that's just kind of how I feel. I feel like there's this giant wave of unknown coming at me and it's terrifying. But with my heavenly father, I can be fearless and courageous and trust in him. And anytime I've prayed about it, he's like, Lexi, I got this. I got this. I got this. You're okay. And it's been hard for me to humble myself and be like, okay, Lord, it's in your hands. And, you know, kind of take a step back and not worry about it. So anyways, that was a total side trail. Continuing on, come follow me. I exercise faith in Jesus Christ by planting and nourishing his word in my heart. Okay, so I found a really interesting article about this. It's from Book of Mormon Central. It's called, Why Did Alma Use Creation Imagery in His Sermon on Faith? Okay, y'all are all familiar, I'm sure, with the Alma planting the little seed of faith and it growing. You know, it's one of our favorite things to do in primaries, plant those little beans and see how they sprout and talk about, you know, how faith grows like that, things like that. Well, this article from Book of Mormon Central was really interesting to me, and I want to read some parts of it to you. 
Okay, here we go. When Alma taught the gospel to the Zoramites in the land of Antionum, he included a masterful discourse on the nature and nurture of faith, as recorded in Alma 32. This chapter is well known to Latter-day Saints who have cherished it for its presentation of eternal gospel truths. This text is replete with profound teachings, such as Alma's insistence that faith is not to have a perfect knowledge of things. Therefore, if you have faith, you hope for the things which are not seen, which are true. To illustrate how Alma 32 is a learned text and a highly sophisticated sermon, the Latter-day Saint biblical scholar David Bokovoy, I think, has recently explored how this passage utilizes biblical elements in the development of its ideas. Specifically, Alma's Sermon on Faith and the Word contains a variety of advanced literary allusions to the Genesis creation accounts. This would put Alma in good company, as Nephi and other Book of Mormon prophets likewise quoted or alluded to prophets such as Zenos and Isaiah through their writings and discourses. For instance, Bokovoy points out Alma's statement that a testimony is light and that whatsoever is light is good clearly reflects God's initial act of creation in Genesis 1, 3-4. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light, that it was good. The use of good throughout Alma 32, 28-39 to describe the seed reflects the language of Genesis 1, which speaks of God pronouncing the various stages of creation good, which is tolf in Hebrew, upon their completion. Additionally, Alma prominently used the imagery of a tree of life bringing forth the fruit of eternal life. But if you will nourish the word, yea, nourish the tree as it beginneth to grow, by your faith with great diligence and with patience looking towards the fruit thereof, it shall take root, and behold, it shall be a tree springing up into everlasting life. And this is from Alma thirty-two forty-one. This imagery finds close alignment with Genesis 2, 9. And out of the ground made the Lord to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. What is remarkable is the wording in Alma 32, which uses the verb spring to describe the action of the tree of life after faith has taken root. As Bokovoy explained, this Hebrew verb used in Genesis 2.5 and in 3.18, translated in the King James Version of the Bible as to bring forth, literally means to spring up. This Genesis passage seems to be echoed in Alma's invitation to his audience to nourish the seed so that it may become a tree springing up into everlasting life. Multiple instances where Alma 32 draws upon the creation imagery found in Genesis 1-3 through conceptually associates Alma's discourse on faith with the original purpose of the human creation. In essence, Alma is saying we were created to cultivate faith. Jenny Webb likewise sees Alma 32 as succinctly encapsulating the plan of salvation. She explained how the process of becoming humble, seeking repentance, finding mercy, and enduring to the end was a pattern established by Adam and Eve in the early chapters of Genesis. These are precisely the main doctrinal points of Alma 32, which culminates as Adam and Eve soon learned with the fundamental truth that redemption can only come through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, pause there. Isn't that so interesting? Once you start seeing those corollaries, I'm like, this is a chapter that I've read multiple times throughout my life, you know, planting the little seed of faith. And all of a sudden, like thinking of it like, oh, this is the same verbiage that we see in creation like they're in Genesis, 
kind of opened up like this whole new way of looking at it. It was really interesting to me the way that it opened it up. And I think Alma may have done this on purpose. I think back to the practice that we see in some of our New Testament texts that we studied last year, and even in some of the texts that we studied from the Book of Mormon, there seems to be kind of like this Jewish tradition almost of heralding back to scriptures that you know, everybody would know because they've been studied so frequently within the Jewish culture. You know, like they talk about Moses all the time. Alma talks about Moses. They love talking about Moses. They love talking about Elijah and a lot of other Old Testament prophets. I'm quoting Isaiah. I'm heralding back to the scriptures that they had at the time, which is not unlike what we do today. Hey, I've got a podcast and I'm like heralding back to the scriptures that were written hundreds of years ago, right? So we still do that same thing. So to me, this would be something that Alma would do. Hey, you guys know about the creation. Let me use some of that imagery in like me talking about the seed that's growing and you guys will kind of connect the two. You know, I see that as Alma kind of being a really good teacher and using something that they would be familiar with. Okay, something else I thought that was interesting about these chapters that I'd never picked up on before. This is also from that same article, but it's a little further down. It says, Book of Mormon prophets understood how crucial it was to always return people to the foundational doctrines of the plan of salvation. While preaching in the apostate city of Ammonihah, Alma emphasized the plan of salvation, including the creation, the fall, the atonement, and the resurrection in a temple context that harkened back to the narrative of Adam and Eve. What Alma apparently realized was that in order to call these apostate Zoramites to repentance, he would have to return to the very beginning, to the creation. The Zoramites had separated themselves from the Nephites, leaving behind the temple in the land of Zarahemla in the process. To win them back, Alma drew from creation imagery of Genesis 1-3, through and this makes sense as Genesis 1-3 through is a text associated often with the temple, which explains why it could have easily have been of service to Alma in his desire to revitalize their consciousness of the temple and its blessings. Okay, so I did want to say this, um, and I don't want to get into the whole temple and stuff that there that's in that chapter because, you know, I take that very sacredly. But I will say this, one of the tools that I use sometimes when I'm studying my scriptures, because I'm a visual learner, I pick up things visually, and then sometimes I'll listen to the scriptures, and I'll pick up different things from listening to the scriptures than I do visually. And when we go to the temple, there is visual stuff that we see, but a lot of it is auditory. And when I was listening to the scriptures this week, I felt like the narrator, it's the male narrator that reads the Book of Mormon, and I felt like he had a very similar voice to the male narrator of, you know, the things that we watch in the temple, and it reminded me a lot. And so I I could hear similarities between the temple ceremony, endowment ceremony, and some of the things that Alma was talking about. So if you get a chance to go listen to it, you know, go listen to it with the Spirit and see what you learn from it. It is very interesting to me because it is. It's about the creation and the fall, and the atonement, and the resurrection. And that's what the temple is about. So of course there's corollaries between the two, what Alma's teaching and also what we get taught in the temple. So I thought that was really cool. Really cool way to look at something that I'd seen a hundred million times before, but make it new and fresh and kind of see it from a different viewpoint. And I really appreciate appreciated that. So I thought that article was just really interesting. I'll post that on my social media and blog so you guys can go look it up as well. Okay, the next section in Come Follow Me, I can worship God in prayer anytime and anywhere. 
Alma and Amulek's counsel about worship and prayer was meant to correct specific misunderstandings the Zoramites had, but the truths they taught could help any of us understand prayer and worship better. Maybe you can make a list of truths about prayer that you find in Alma 33, 2-11, or 34, 17-29. Alright, so first let's go in and see what we learn about prayer from these scriptures. And it sounds like a lot of scriptures, but it's really not that much, so we're going to read through them really quick, and I want to identify things that I learn as we go along. Okay, so this is Alma 33, starting in 2, going to 11. And Alma said unto them, Behold, you have said that you could not worship your God because you are cast out of your synagogues. But behold, I say unto you, if ye suppose that you cannot worship God, ye do greatly err, and ye ought to search the scriptures. For if you suppose that they have taught you this, you do not understand them. Okay, pause. So there, from what I learned there, is that we can worship God, we can pray to God outside of church, outside of our formal worship services. Three, do you remember to have read what Zenus, the prophet of old, has said concerning prayer or worship? For he said, Thou art merciful, O God, for thou hast heard my prayer, even when I was in the wilderness. Yea, thou wast merciful when I prayed concerning those who are my enemies, and thou didst turn them to me. Okay, pause there. I love the words of Zenus, and I cannot wait to the day where we get to have like all of his words because they're so beautiful. Um, they remind me a lot of Isaiah just because they have such beautiful imagery. And so I love what he said. You heard my prayer even in my wilderness or in the wilderness. And I don't necessarily think that in our lives that means we have to be outstanding in the middle of a desert or, you know, whatever wilderness would be in, in your life. But I think that they can be like, metaphorical wildernesses. I think there's times where we feel completely alone, or we may be in situations maybe where we're the only member of the church in that situation, and we have to go through something really hard, and that can feel like a wilderness as well. But we can be in prayer to our God, even in those wildernesses. And then also, he prayed concerning those who were mine enemy, and thou didst turn them to me. A lot of times when we read about this, we think of enemies as people who, you know, we're fighting against, like real physical, like personal enemies. And that's what I always kind of associated with. And so whenever they talked about enemies, I was kind of like, well, I don't really have any any enemies. I kind of love everybody. I mean, there's a few people that maybe are not my favorite, but they're not like my enemies. So I started thinking, well, what are my enemies? And I started thinking about things, you know, sin is my enemy. Satan is my enemy. Different things like depression and anxiety, those are my enemies. My imperfections, those are my enemies. How can I turn them into something that's good? You know, Satan and his temptations, take them away. That turns it into something that's good. Depression and anxiety, help me find ways to treat them. That turns it into something that's good. My imperfections, turn them into something that brings me closer to Christ. You know, take those enemies that I have in my life and turn them so that I can come closer to you. All right, five. Yea, O God, thou was merciful unto me when I did cry unto thee in my fields, when I did cry unto thee in prayer, and thou didst hear me. Okay, in my fields. So that was his place of work. So wherever you go to work or school, whatever you do with your day, he can hear you there too. And you can pray about whatever you do with your day. Six. And again, O God, when I did turn to my house, thou didst hear me in my prayer. Pray at home, pray with your families. And then when I did turn into my closet, O Lord, and prayed unto thee, thou didst hear me. You know, make sure that you're having personal prayer too. Eight, yea, thou art merciful unto my children when they cry unto thee to be heard of thee and not of men, thou wilt hear them. 
Make sure that your children and your family know to pray. 9. Yea, O God, thou hast been merciful unto me and heard my cries in the midst of thy congregations. So when we gather as saints, that's a really good time to pray too. 10. Yea, and thou hast also heard me when I have been cast out and have been despised by my enemies. Yea, thou didst hear my cries and wast angry with my enemies, and thou didst visit them in thine anger with speedy destruction. Okay, again, I was like, what is like with this visiting the enemies with speedy destruction just because they're my enemy? What if my enemies are praying against me? You know, like I I was always concerned with these verses. But again, if we think about them as metaphorical enemies, visit them with destruction, destroy temptation and Satan out of my life, destroy the things that are burdens to me, destroy or help me carry them at least, Um, turn them into something that I can carry, help me hold them up. Um, That was just something I thought about too. All right. And 11, and thou didst hear me because of mine afflictions and my sincerity. The word sincerity there kind of jumped out at me. How sincere are we when we pray? You know, I think about, <laughs> there's this one time in particular, I think about mutual where we were having brownies. And of course, you always have to bless the food. And they're like, and please bless the food. They'll keep us strong and healthy. And I'm like, brownies? Really? You want the brownies to keep us strong and healthy? Like, come on. So, you know, watch out for those vain repetitions. I'm really bad about it too. I know I am. And so that's something I've tried to call myself on multiple times. And so with sincerity, do I really mean for those brownies to keep me strong and healthy? Uh, They'll keep me going for a little while, but you know, I guess sincerity, that really stuck, stuck with me this week. And it is because of thy son that thou hast been thus merciful unto me. Therefore, I will cry unto thee in all my afflictions for thee for in thee is my joy, for thou hast turned thy judgments away from me because of thy son. How beautiful is that? I love that. For in thee is my joy, for thou hast turned thy judgments away from me because of thy son. I love that. Oh, Zenos, so good. So, so good. I love that. Okay. So that was that particular section that we read about. The other section, Come Follow Me, directs us to is in 34... 17 through 29, which again, sounds like a lot, but it's really not because they're like one sentence verses. Now, here's what's interesting to me about this. Are you ready for this? So Alma has sat down and Amulek is teaching now. And if you remember a couple of episodes ago, I was like destroyed by the description of what happened in Ammonihah. Like I was not okay. Right. And so I was really concerned about Amulek. Well, here we are. I looked at the different, like about so-and-so BC. And I think this one in 74 BC is where we're reading it. Yeah, 74 BC. And so Ammonihah took place about 81 BC. So we are now about seven years past Ammonihah. So Amulek, I don't know what has happened in his life. Maybe he got married again. Maybe he's got family and a household now. I don't know what, what has gone on with him. But it was very interesting to me to go in and read the things that he tells us to pray for, because I feel like a lot of these he lost in Ammonihah. Okay, so here we go. We're going to start in 17, 34, 17. Therefore, may God grant unto you, my brethren, that ye may begin to exercise faith unto repentance, that ye may begin to call upon his holy name, that he would have his mercy upon you. Yea, cry unto him for mercy, for he is mighty to save. Yea, humble yourselves and continue in prayer unto him. Okay, pause there. So for someone who has seen the saving power of God used and also not used, he's testifying cry unto him, he's mighty to save. Okay, that that kind of stuck with me a little bit. 
20. Cry unto him when you are in your fields, yea, over all your flocks. Cry unto him in your houses, yea, over all your household, both morning, midday, and evening. Okay, pause there. Amulek left his whole household behind when he left Ammonihah. So he lost his fields, his flocks, and his houses. Okay? But yet he's telling them to pray over theirs. So I'm like, there's, it's just beautiful to me that this man who has lost these things now treasures them so dearly and is telling us to treasure them as well. 22. Yea, cry unto him against the power of your enemies. Yea, cry unto him against the devil who is an enemy to all righteousness. Cry unto him over the crops of your field that ye may prosper in them. Cry over the flocks of your fields that they may increase. Okay, pause there. So that was interesting to me as well. So their jobs back then were planting things and also their flocks. So this is about praying about your job, that you may prosper in it. You know, the flocks of your fields, that it may increase, that you may see prosperity in your life. I think it's okay to pray for that. I think that's what Amulek is telling us. It's okay to pray for prosperity in your life. And that was something that was new to me that I was like, I'd never wanted to pray for that before, but maybe that's okay. All right. 26. But this is not all. You must pour out your souls in your closets and your secret places and in your wilderness. Yea, and when you do not cry unto the Lord, let your hearts be full, drawn out in prayer unto him continually for your welfare and also for the welfare of those who are around you. That's like that umbilical cord, I'm telling you, like between you and Heavenly Father, just constantly having a conversation. And it was interesting to me where, you know, drawn out in prayer continually for your welfare and also for the welfare of those who are around you. And I remember a time where this specifically happened. This was at the school I was at previously. It was a middle school. And for the most part, the kids there were really good. Um, It was very middle class, you know, nothing too scary happening there. But we did have a situation where a kid one day brought a knife to school with the intent to stab another student. And where my library was is I had these big double doors looking out on a courtyard. And this was happening in the courtyard that the library was looking at. And of course, the minute that we went into a code red lockdown because of what was happening, all the doors locked. So all of the kids were like locked in the courtyard with this kid with a knife, right? And so I remember just constantly like that prayer having that prayer in my heart and talking to my Heavenly Father that morning, multiple things, and seeing this going on. And my thought was, Heavenly Father, is this okay? Do I go out there and let these kids in? What do I, is it safe? And I remember just hearing, run, go do it. And so I go flying out there, tear open the library doors and get all the like innocent bystander type kids in that we can. And it was having that prayer in my heart that morning, talking to my Heavenly Father and being told by the Spirit, this is okay. Go, go run and help these kids get to safety. And we were able to get the kids inside and get them off to class so that our SRO, our police officer could go out there and take care of the kid with the knife. And, um, but that was what came to my mind when I read that particular scripture about the welfare of those who are around you. 28 says, and now behold, my beloved brethren, I say unto you, do you not suppose that this is all? For after you have done all these things, if you turn away the needy and the naked and visit not the sick and afflicted and a part of your substance, if you have to those who stand in need, I say unto you, if you do not any of these things, behold, your prayer is vain and availeth you nothing. And ye are as the hypocrites who deny, do deny the faith. Therefore, if you do not remember to be charitable, you are as dross, which the refiners do cast out, it being of no worth and is trodden under the foot of men. 
interesting that he used the word dross because we saw the word dross previously. Do you remember when we read it previously in another scripture? In Alma 32, 3, where they were talking about not being good enough to go into the synagogues, yea, they were esteemed by their brethren as dross. So apparently this is a word that they were using a lot to describe, you know, and dross is like the impurities that they pull out of gold, like the yucky stuff that's left when you got like the beautiful gold left over. Um, So it's interesting to me that he used that again, that you don't want to be this. You want to make sure that you are not dross because that you're taking care of people and taking care of things, that you're not just asking for stuff from your heavenly father, then you are turning around and being his hands here on earth. And to me, that was like me checking myself. Am I helping the needy? Am I clothing the naked? Like both the like literal naked and also like the metaphorically naked, those who are exposed to things. Am I visiting the sick and afflicted? Am I imparting of my substance? And am I, you know, helping those who have need? Otherwise, your prayer is vain and availeth you nothing. So that was to me, I'm kind of going through doing like a mental mind check. Like, okay, I need to be a little better at this. I need to be a little bit better about this and about serving people in this way. So I don't know. That was instructive to me as well. All right. And the last couple of sections here. One was who was Zenus and Zenak? Zenus and Zenak were prophets who testified of Christ during Old Testament times, but their teachings are not found in the Old Testament. The Nephites had access to the teachings of these prophets, probably because they were included in the brass plates that Nephi obtained from Laban. And they're also mentioned in 1 Nephi, Jacob, and Helaman. Okay, one of the things that kind of came to me as I was thinking about this, that they are testified of Jesus Christ during Old Testament times, but are not found in the Old Testament. Um, Their teachings are beautiful. And they're also very much laid out like, this is Christ. This is who he is. He will save you. Um, Very kind of just explicit. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that like they're very clear about who Jesus Christ is and what he does for us. And I could see the Jewish leaders of the time, you know, as we're getting more and more into the law of Moses and more and more into like all these rules and regulations that we follow. And that's what's going to save us, not necessarily Jesus Christ. I could see why maybe those things kind of got cut out. I don't know. I'm just saying. Isaiah has some similar prophecies, but his are kind of wrapped in mystery and cloaked in like vagueness and stuff like that. And they're still beautiful, but they're not as plain, flat out and straightforward as the prophecies that we have of Zenus and Zenek that are quoted in the Book of Mormon. So I'm really grateful that we do have those because they are beautiful and they did get cut out at some point, and I'm grateful that they have returned to us. And I can't wait, again, to read the whole books of them. I think that that will be amazing. I'm going to go ahead now and end this episode. And, you know, I like to include music when I can. And this week, the whole time as I'm reading my scriptures, I have a primary song stuck in my head. And this song is Faith. And the reason that this is stuck in my head is because some of the lyrics go, let me see here. Faith is like a little seed. If planted, it will grow. Faith is swelling within my heart. When I do right, I know. So it might be something that you want to sing along with your families. Um, I didn't go out and find like a fancy person singing the song. I couldn't really find a fancy person singing the song. So this is just straight up from the church's like music, children's songbook music. So, you know, it is what it is. But this is Faith from the Primary Children's Songbook. I love you guys. Have an awesome week. Bye, y'all.
The Savior Said is not an official product or endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All comments and opinions are my own personal opinions and not representative of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music used in The Savior Said is Fireflies and Stardust by Kevin McLeod. The hymn quoted in the opening is Come Follow Me, lyrics by John Nicholson. The Come Follow Me curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For show notes, new episode alerts, and other fun and inspirational things, check out my Facebook page at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. You can also find me on Instagram. Comments or questions? Email me at thesaviorsaid at gmail.com. Content in The Savior Said is copyright protected. All rights are reserved. Thank you for listening.